You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. But there's this profound question. What does it look like for you and I, this side of the glorious bodily resurrection, to be human, to be alive? I think David offers us a profound and foundational answer to this question. Now, you probably know of David, whether it's from VeggieTales or VBS or your childhood or, I don't know, some PBS special um, or just you've grown up in the church. Like, if you know anything about the Bible, David is, like, at the top of a very short list of things that, like, just generally, like, oh, yeah, there's this guy named David. He was a king. There was a giant at one point. I don't know. Um, but there's no other person in all of the scriptures that we're actually told so much about. Like, isn't that weird? Like, we know more about the life of David than we do the life of Jesus. And even though Jesus' story is told by four different authors... David's life, we're given more, more time and energy spent telling more of the story of David's life. Now, that doesn't make David more important than Jesus, obviously. But there's something in this that means, wait a second, there's something that the Scriptures is inviting us to pay attention to in this individual. And our temptation, which is a very common temptation, is to read the David story in one of two ways. One, we're going to read the David story and we're going to encounter it as like this moral example that we ought to follow. Please don't run around killing your enemies and beheading them. Like that's just general. Like if you learn anything in church today, it should be that murder is wrong. Don't go murder people and be like, well, I don't know. He was in the position that I wanted, so I beheaded him. Don't do that. There's another temptation though. So in our uh, tendency to deify David, to make him this larger than life uh, demigod, we sometimes will react to that. And as we grow up and we read the Bible and we watch YouTube videos, um, we end up becoming a little cynical and we realize, wait, hold on, there's more here than we thought and we can go the other direction and we can begin to read the David story in an overly modern way where we take, uh, I, like, I liken it to dissection, right? So if you were in biology at some point, you probably dissected something. You take something that's good and beautiful and alive and you pin it to a piece of paper and then you cut it into pieces so you can see how it works and learn about it and right and it's I'm sure good and beneficial at some point and yet the thing that was fully alive is inherently more valuable than the thing you just chopped up and so what can happen is in our cynicism and in our like modernist readings of the David story we can strip it to so many different shreds that it becomes unrecognizable and to uh, like utterly useless to us and so for those of us who grew up with the first approach to David, I hope that we quickly realize that this is highly problematic. 
If you read the story with me this week, I hope that as you're reading this story, you're realizing that David is a very complicated, very nuanced, and very violent human being. And I hope that for those of us who grew up with this approach and have reacted to it, I want to invite you into something a little bit different. I want to invite you into hearing and reading the David story, not as an example of what it means to be a a hero, not as an example of what it means to be a good guy or a super Christian, but instead as an example of what it means to be a human being who's broken and weak and flawed in a broken and flawed world. Now, David's really important. We saw in our reading today the heart of why David is so important. In 2 Samuel 7, which Dan read for us this morning, we see this commitment given to David. Hey, David, I'm going to take you, and out of you, I'm going I'm to bring this king whose kingdom is never going to end, and there's going to be peace from enemies, and there's going to be real, true, authentic rest. And, and we're going to find that as we go through the scriptures and we get to the New Testament, we get to this person of Jesus, there's this theologically loaded word that's coming from the text that we heard this morning. As people encounter Jesus, they cry out, son of David, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what they're doing is they are importing this promise that was given to David on the person of Jesus, and one in which the person of Jesus is absolutely fulfilling. And so this makes David profound, and this makes David important, but this uh, son of David that is going to rule over this nation that is to come, this Jesus is a very different type of king than David was. A, a, a king who does not conquer with violence, but instead conquers through sacrificial love. But what we learn from this passage in 2 Samuel 7 is this idea that God's relentless choice to act through a broken and violent human being is to bring about the redemption of the cosmos. See, God doesn't need David to be a hero. God doesn't need David to be perfect. God doesn't need David to, to like tick these moral checkbox in, in order to bring out redemption, in order to bring out uh, the reconciliation of the cosmos, in order to bring about restoration of relationship between God and all of his creation. God is going to use David in his best moments and in his worst moments. It does not matter because it is not up to David. It does not depend on David. It depends on God. So God works in and through this mess of a man to bring about the redemption of the cosmos. So let's talk a little bit about this man's story. If you didn't read with us, we'll do a really quick brief recap. So David's a lowly shepherd. So there's this guy named Samuel who's God's prophet, who is like going out throughout the countryside, listening to the voice of God, who's supposed to be directing him to God's choice of a king. He comes to this family, the sons of Jesse, and he says, Jesse, show me your sons. And David is so unimportant that he doesn't even get an invitation. Like, yeah, here's all the sons that matter. Right, so Samuel goes to the sons. It's none of them. They're tall, they're handsome, they're warriors. They're everything that you would want in a leader, and none of them fit the bill. And so finally, you got any more sons? And Jesse's like, yeah, I got this dude over here, but he's like, he smells like sheep turds. It's really weird. You don't want to have anything to do with them. And so he brings it before him, and lo and behold, this is God's choice. A shocker, right? If you've been reading through the Old Testament, it should not surprise us that the not the firstborn, not the strongest, not the smartest, not the best looking is God's choice. 
And so we're, uh, we get this picture of an anointed king who's anointed because God says this, he has a heart like mine, or a heart that's after mine. So the question becomes, like, what is it about David that is so unique that God is like, yes, that is what it means to be human? Because it's not David's morality. What do you mean it's not his morality? Well, um, so let's talk about this a little bit. So after David is anointed king, like, life goes on, and you're like, okay, cool, I'm anointed king, and yet there's, like, this whole other king named Saul who's still in charge of Israel. Uh, What are we supposed to do about that? And so David, right, really beautiful picture of humanity here. David faithfully waits for Yahweh to give him what God has promised him. He sits back and he does not go and take his position by force, although he had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. He doesn't do it. He has plenty of justification to kill Saul, like self-defense, all that sort of stuff. Doesn't do it. Waits on God. Beautiful picture of that. However... In David's, like, faithfulness, he also is um, a man of his time. We're in the second Iron Age, and David, who has been driven out of Israel, out into the wilderness by this Saul figure, uh, this king named Saul, he goes out into the wilderness, and he eats out an existence by being a mercenary. And, and if you read carefully, and this is one of the reasons why I love reading the scriptures in Big you read carefully, what you find is the people that David goes to and makes treaties with and fights for are like the enemies of Israel. At one point, David goes to the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are like numero uno enemies of Israel. The Philistines are like the people that had Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. David kills Goliath, chops off his head, and yay, awesome, triumphant. And then several years later, rolls up to the Philistines and is like, hey, can I join your army? Right, this is who David is. And he takes his crew of non-Israelite fighters and warriors, and he basically goes around as a warrior for hire. This is not seen as like a good thing. At one point, David is actually marching in the Philistine army towards battle with his own people, and this ends up being the battle that eventually kills Saul. Now, David, at the last minute, jumps out of that and goes and hides. But he is not exactly like this moral, upstanding person. He still be like him, too. He lies. He cheats. Um, he does some political maneuvering. And so in David, we encounter someone deeply flawed. Perhaps maybe even more flawed than you. I don't know when the last time you went around warmongering was, but... But what David's story shows us is there's this golden thread that's woven throughout the story of David. That's David's unwillingness throughout all of it, good, bad, ugly, to withdraw from God. David refuses to withdraw from God. And this is part of what it means to be a human who's deeply alive. David helps us imagine that a human who is truly alive, who is fully human, is not perfectly moral, is not pious, is not spiritual, is not religious, but instead, to be fully human and fully alive is a life in relentless recognition of God. David carries with him this awareness of God that is really beautiful and really uncanny. David writes a big chunk of our psalms, 
And if you don't know what the Psalms are, Psalms are literally their songs that Israel would later then read and sing together as like worship. So David is this poet who in his running and fleeing and fighting and political maneuvering is actually writing these beautiful worship songs in the midst of all of that to describe and explain it and add this theological color to all of it. Because in all of the fighting and all of the political maneuvering and all of the running and hiding, God was always present. God was always there. God was always active. This is what David offers us. And the center of the David story is not actually David, but it's this God who behind the scenes is relentlessly faithful to David. And so the the point of David's story is not to elevate David, right? Look how awesome he is. But instead, it is a continuation of the story that we've encountered throughout the entire Old Testament. It is Yahweh's relentless faithfulness to a broken world and a broken people to bring about redemption, to bring about resurrection, to bring about restoration. And we see that happening here as well. And all throughout that, David understands that God is there. In the silence, God is there. When things are going terribly wrong, God is there. When he doesn't understand, God is there. God is always there, quietly active and present. And David puts on full display the working of God in and through humanity and all of his weakness and frailty. David shows us what we can look like today. As humans who, in just a little bit, are going to get up and go about our normal lives. I know many of you have brought in a number of different deeply flawed things. Some of you are experiencing very intense brokenness right now. Fractured relationships. Really complicated like family dynamics. Chronic diseases and illnesses. Some of you are bringing in here recent deaths. You're bringing in grief and mourning and pain. Some of you are bringing in here the stress of young children. (laughs) Some of you are bringing in here like fear of like, I don't know if I'm going to have a job in a couple of weeks. Or I just graduated, I don't know what, a, what job I'm going to have to choose. Or should I make this choice or that choice? And I don't even know who I am anymore. And I'm struggling with anxiety and I'm struggling with depression. And I'm struggling with right, whatever it is. Some of you are coming in here and you just made the worst decision of your life last night. I don't know. As we bring that in here... We're not bringing it in here to the sanctified space so that we can bring it in here and then leave it here and then come back again next week. No, no, we're bringing it in here into the presence of God who goes with us as we leave. And God is with us in our sinning and God is with us in our anxiety and God is with us in our depression and our weakness and our failure and our success. God is with us every moment of every day, not just the really spiritual ones. That's the point. That's the lesson from David. In, in 1 Samuel, when the prophet goes and anoints this young David as king, um, God tells him, hey, this is a man after my own heart. And that doesn't mean that he's a perfect human or uh, even a good one, <laughs> right? But it means that in David's experience of and witness to God, Eugene Peterson says it this way, every event in his life was a confrontation with God. 
And I wonder if we began to see the world that way, what would change about our spiritual life? What would change about our humanness? When you get up in the morning and you're, I don't know, it's just a normal, groggy, Monday state, and you're like, I don't know, I'm going to my job, and my job is kind of my job, and a little disappointing at this point, or wherever you're at. Maybe you're really excited about your job. I don't know. Congratulations, by the way, if that's you. Um, What if in that moment, you recognize that God was there and with you? And not just like some sort of like on paper, like theologically, this is true, but like, no, 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 because everything that David does, every statement that he has or theological principle he has about God is prayed out. It's never just like, oh, here's a nice interesting fact that I'm going to put in a theological textbook. No, 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 he confronts God with it. As he walks through the desert and he sees a rock, he's like, that's a rock. God created the rock. God is my rock. God is my rock. You are my rock. I stand firm in you. You defend me from my enemies. You are my refuge. You are my firm foundation. He always takes that and prays it back out. What would it look like for us to do the same? In the earthiness and the boringness and the mundaneness of our real life with all of its beauty and all of its disappointment and all of its stress, what if we took all of that and we turned it to God. Eugene Peterson goes on to say this about David, that David the shepherd had practiced the presence of God so thoroughly that God's word, which he could never literally hear, was far more real to him than the lion's roar. And I, right, I don't want to get too, like, stereotypical preacher here, but are there some lions roaring right now? I had a conversation with um, a very close relative to me. She's older in age, sweet, sweet lady, um, and she just can't turn off a certain news channel. And I'm like, just turn it off. And so our conversation was like, she is experiencing real stress and anxiety because from her perspective, the world is going to hell in a handbastic, and she feels helpless. And she feels like everything that she has lived for and worked for is just withering away and that that even her own like kids and grandkids are going to grow up in this terrible evil place and she's got only a few years left and she's just like, there's just this angst of like, what can I do? And we briefly talked and I tried to reassure her like, hey, none of this is new. You remember the 60s? You remember Watergate? Do you remember Vietnam? Like, can we... Uh, This isn't like, oh my gosh, we were so perfect and now we're not perfect anymore. What happened? And the only thing that you have the power to change right now is your perception of who God is and where God is at in this moment in our history. Who is God? Is he really good? Will he really act? Does he really care for you and your children and your grandchildren the way that you believe that he does? If that is true, how can you remind yourself of that? No, no, better, how can you repeat that back to God? How can you pray that to him? This is what David invites us into. If you know the story of David, you know that there's a turning point in David's story. Um, Trigger alert, there's some nudity here. Not literally. Um, <laughs> so the turning point for David, is, of course, Bathsheba. That was my really s- terrible attempt of trying to enter, insert humor right here. It says insert humor. Um, right, so we got the famous Bathsheba moment where uh, the 
regardless of what you, Mr. Cohen, told you, David is not seeing Bathsheba on a rooftop. She's not taking a bath on the roof. David is on the roof, and he ought to have been at war, and instead he's like back at home sending his minions out to do war for him. There's a whole like thing there. And instead, he's like peering down very creepily into like one of his key warriors' wives' like bathroom windows, right? This is not just like, oh, I did not realize that you lived there, that place that you live by my, my uh, castle for all of your life and that room that you've bathed in for all of most of your life, whatever, right? So he, this is all very intentional. He sees her, and, right, and we've seen this throughout the story. He sees her, he sees that she's good, and he takes her. Anytime that uh, the Old Testament uses that language, something really bad is happening. And so he essentially coerces and uses his political power and position to um, coerce Bathsheba into his bed and impregnates her. He's like, well, what are we going to do about this? I've now got my, one of my key warrior's wives pregnant. How do we fix this? I know, we'll kill him. And so he uses some of his political savvy to take this warrior who is married to Bathsheba and puts him up in the front of the army and then tells his boy Joab, hey, when the battle gets intense, just have everybody kind of back away. And so that's exactly what he does. Now, there's some severity here that God is going to respond with. Um, and I'm not going to address the severity today, but if you want to have a conversation about this, we can certainly have a conversation God's response is, that kid is not going to live because of what you have done, David. And so what happens is the prophet Nathan comes and tells them, hey, you've done this terrible thing. Your, your kid is not going to live. This is what God says. And David's response is as follows. In 2 Samuel verse, chapter 12, verse 15, if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up here, you certainly can. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him, urging him to rise from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, While the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we tell him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he's dead. Now, I want you to, because this is how we ought to read the scriptures. I want you to take yourself and put yourself in the position of David here. You've done this really horrible thing that you really knew was horrible, but you're like, ah, whatever, I want this, I'm the king. You've done it, and now the consequences of that, right? Can you imagine the guilt and the shame that you already feel after you've been called out? Now the consequences, as you're like writhing in the guilt and the shame, are the loss of this child who I would imagine you find pretty significant since it is your firstborn son and you are a king. And David is sitting in that guilt and that shame, and what does he do? He goes, and day and night he fasts and pleads with the Lord. He wrestles with God and begs him, no, no, not this, anything but this. Right, he could have gotten bitter and angry and 
rejected God and run away. He could have tried to like manipulate it and fix it. He could have brought in sorcerers of Baal. He could have done a number of different things. But instead, he goes before the Lord and he fasts and he prays and he fasts and he prays and he fasts and he prays. But watch this. Verse 20. After his son died, then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. All right, so these are, he's taking off all of his mourning. And he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. He went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. The same Lord that in this story has just taken the son from him. The same Lord that as he fasted and prayed did not answer that prayer. He goes and his response to that God is to worship. I wonder why. Right, if you're, if you're hearing this as a like, and you should do that too, no, 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 I don't think that's the point of the story. I think the point of the story is, my God, what did David believe about God? I think David believed that God was merciful and good. I think David believed that the only one who could help his child was God. And I think David believed that even after his child was gone, the only thing that he could do was come back into the presence of God and worship. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. A key piece of what it means for us to be human is our awareness and our communion with God. Not when things are going good, not when we have like an hour in silence to be able to pray and read and study, but when the bullets are flying and the chaos of life, our awareness that God is there and God is with us. So I've experienced this um, from a handful of people in my life. One of them taught me what this meant, not by telling me, but by showing me, not like literally showing me, but by telling me stories about their own personal encounters with God. So uh, as I grew up, my, I was like, speaking of messes, my, my life was a mess. I was 21. I had like, it was, I was a hot mess. I was not in college. I was at community college, failing classes at community college, um, super prestigious life in front of me. And at this point, had like really recognized, no, 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 there's this childhood God that I knew and I want to become reacquainted with him. And so my mom is now dragging me, uh, sort of dragging me to a women's Bible study. And so here I am, a 21-year-old single man surrounded by like 35-year-old moms listening to this woman teach the Bible, right? Super great. This is, by the way, this is how I spent my Friday nights, doing Bible studies about women's uh, hearts and God's dwelling place. Anyways. But one of the things that, that this woman showed me was not, look at all the interesting things about the Bible, not look at all the things you can know about God, but this is what a life with God actually looks like. And she would describe these like visceral and earthy reactions to like normal everyday life. And, and some of the things that she would do is she would uh, like talk about how when she prayed, she would put her face into the floor and she would kneel and she would like viscerally respond to God and she would word vomit to God all of the things that she was thinking and feeling, not worrying about, well, is this actually theologically correct or is this right and what's God going to think about this? But instead, she literally cast herself upon the goodness and love of the God that she believed was there with her. And as a young man, I am eternally grateful 
for her willingness to share that because it has come with me a, uh, for all of my life. So this last week, I've, so, um, so my wife has chronic disease, um, lupus, so she struggles with pain and fatigue and all of that, and she recently was, um, we found out we're pregnant, so that's exciting. If you know our story, you know that's like a really big deal, yeah, yeah. Like, really, praise God. But when, when Gabby told me, like, hey, I'm pregnant, I, my reaction was literally to fall on my knees, not in, like, the praying kind of way, but in, like, the, oh, my God, what in the world are we going to do kind of way. Um, but this is good news. Um, so the lupus symptoms have gone away, and they've been replaced with, like, severe, complicated pregnancy symptoms. And so this is, like, really stressful, hard. And we're like, oh, this is going to be, oh, it's the same, but it's just different. Anyways, I say all of that to say the last week was really challenging for a number of different reasons. I have a two-year-old. She's wonderful and she's brilliant, but she's also two. And so there's a lot of times where we as a family really struggle with like navigating what does this even look like. And it, it hit me over the last couple of days that in the midst of my own frustration and my own anger, my own grief, my own like dealing with the reality of like feeling like life has dealt us this bum hand, that God is there with me. And I, I, I can't explain it to you other than just like in that moment, I was able to close my eyes and just recognize the God of love who is with me and who sees me and who knows me and assures me of resurrection and healing and like real actual hope. And it was a balm to my soul. And I thought of this woman. And I don't know that I would have responded this way if I didn't have the example of this woman. This is the example of David. It's not to be perfect, but it's to be human and deeply embody communion with God. And so I will close here, and Chantal's laughing because she has this ongoing joke about I close like five times in a sermon. This is the actual one, okay? How do I, if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know, that sounds intriguing, that sounds interesting, like how do I get there? What do I do? Can we put some like tangible, practical things on this? I just, I want to make this as simple as I possibly can. David's response to this, David's response to the reality that God is present with me at all times is worship. And a lot of times that's absolutely yes, that's singing, full on yes, but sometimes it's praying, sometimes it's kneeling, sometimes it's reading some liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer. But David was a radical worshiper, and practically, functionally, the way we worship forms us as human beings. And what it does is it decenters us. Right? And it decenters us in the like prideful way, but it also decenters us in the like the, hey, you don't have to be the answer to all of your problems. Because if you've lived long enough, you realize there's just a lot of problems in life that you're not going to be able to solve. You don't have to be your own savior. Worship allows me to step back and leave some space for God to do what God does in God's timing and really trust and believe and hope that God will come through the way that I think that he will. And what I want to invite you into is not to carve out like special times and retreats and all that, like yeah, absolutely do that, but like what about on your commute to work? Or when you're sitting there between emails, or you have this spike of anxiety because you just read something, you're like, ah, crud, how am I going to respond to that? I'm I'm now in this reactionary mode. What do I do? What if in those moments we worshiped? Just a brief 
Maybe, I don't know, if you've got the space and the time, maybe you actually get on your knees and you close your eyes and you're like, God, I don't, I don't know what to do here, but I, I just give this to you and my feelings to you and I just trust and, and hope that you care for me. What might it look like for us to do this? Eugene Peterson describes this as earthy spirituality. I love that so much. Earthy in the sense that it's down to earth every day, alive to Godness. As we're doing laundry, as we're meal prepping, as we're driving to and from work, as we're interacting with our coworkers and our family, the awareness of God's presence. Everything David saw, noticed, and went through, he connected and related to God. Everything he named and noticed about God, he prayed. Uh, Eugene Peterson says it this way, David knew nothing about God that he did not pray to God. So there's this... um, quote on my board in my office that I really like and I look at every now and then, need to look at every now and then, and it just says, your life is not out there, it is right here. Your life is not out there, it is right here. You are, like me, a deeply flawed, broken human being. There are things that you lack, things that you need, but the fulfillment for those things is not out there. You're not going to find it in the things that you're chasing after and running for. It is here because God is here, right here, with you in this moment, working, working in you, in spite of you, for you, and even for the world. This is the story of David. Do you see it? Can you hear it? The little children remind us. And what if in ways like that we we hear the little children and we're reminded of things, of the beauty and the goodness and the lightness of God, the gentle and intent movement of the Christ, the son of David who has assured us, I am with you even to the end of this age. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.